True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The woman looks up as the young man approaches. She recognizes him immediately. She doesn't know him personally, but he's often in Skillock selling chickens. She's seen him around. She almost goes back to her task at hand, but her brain suddenly tells her that in that quick glance, she's taken in something different about him. Today, he's not dressed in his usual shorts and t-shirt. He looks like a soldier, and the morning sun glints off something metallic in his hand. The sound of the shotgun blasts ring out at the same moment that she realizes It's a gun he's holding. After that, chaos erupts. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 102, The Skillock Massacre. This episode is sponsored by Just Wellness. It's 2023, a new year and 365 opportunities to do things differently. I'm pretty sure health-related New Year's resolutions are probably the most popular, but they're probably also the most frequently broken by, well, probably already by this point in January. And that's often because we set these lofty goals for ourselves. We set ourselves up for failure by claiming we're going to completely reinvent our diets, our exercise regime, and rebuild our bodies into some bionic dream version. And we wonder why we fail. Instead, perhaps we should just be going with some small changes that will make a big difference, like incorporating one of Just Wellness's blends into your daily routine. The Just Wellness Olive Leaf Extract and Moringa Blend is a great way to boost your general wellness and get your new year off to the right start. Moringa contains 25 times more iron than spinach, as well as a high level of fiber and some vitamin B. Combined with the benefits of olive leaf extract, this is one small inclusion you can make to take a great leap forward, toward achieving your New Year, New You resolution. All of Just Wellness's products, including the Moringa Blend, are available for purchase on their website, justwellness.co.za. And if you buy two products, you'll get free delivery. A huge thank you to Just Wellness for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank those who have supported the podcast through Patreon and PayPal recently. A huge thank you goes out to Mogaswari Naidu, Sally Brimble-Hanneth, Phoenix, Michelle, Yale and Mouton, Nalan van Bredaar, Candice Creek, Emma, George Mustakis, Janine Kuhn, Petru Kloppers, Takara Brook, Dani van der Walt, and Shanae Alvis for your support on Patreon as well as Ilka Zenskirali, for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. 
your support really does make a huge difference. Patreon subscribers get access to all of the existing Patreon-exclusive episodes on the platform. There are about 23 at the moment, and you get a new one every month. You also get access to an ad-free version of every week's episode and bonus content as I produce it. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. I first started delving into the case I'm covering in this episode when I was researching my book, Samurai Sword Murder. It paralleled that case in a few ways. Mass murder, a very young offender, and when it happened. My book, Samurai Sword Murder, of course, covers the murder of Jacques Pretorius in August of 2008. That was not technically a mass murder, but it was the perpetrator's intention. And in January of that same year, there was a completed mass murder in South Africa. 300 kilometers away from where Mornay Haramsa killed Jacques Pretorius and attempted to kill three others in Krugersdorp, another young man carried out the plan he'd been developing in his mind. My research for this episode comes from media articles, academic studies carried out after the crime was committed, and a book about convicted offenders who fall in love behind bars called Lifta Achter Trollis by Carla van der Spey. So let's get into episode 102, The Skillic Massacre. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Johan Nall was born to his parents, Corey and Henny Nall, in 1990. The couple already had another son when Johan was born, and they were happy with their two boys to complete their family. Corey trained and qualified as a teacher, and worked as one for many years. But with two small children, she soon focused her energy on being a housewife and stay-at-home mom. Henny had started his working career in the South African Police Service, but he'd left that behind after a few years, moving briefly into the construction industry before focusing on various farming ventures when he and his wife moved their family to a farm they purchased near Swartrichens in the northwest province. Swartrichens is located by the Irlands River, 69 kilometers from the town of Zerist and 56 kilometers west of the city of Rustenburg. Its name comes from a series of hills on the outskirts of town, formerly known as Swartrichens, which is a Dutch phrase that means black ridges. The town is predominantly made up of agricultural business, and the Null family would fit easily into the Africano farmer community there. There's limited information available about Johan's childhood, but the bits and pieces that there are can paint a bit of the picture for us. Before it was popular, Cory Null decided to homeschool her children. Why she would have chosen to do so is not really clear, but there are a few possibilities. With Swartrichens being a relatively rural community, 
although there are both primary and high schools in the town. It's possible that the Nulls had a choice between sending their sons to boarding school, which is often the only option for farm families, or homeschooling their children. With Corey being a qualified teacher, it seems to have been a smart choice to put those skills to use. This reason is, of course, one possibility of why the Null children were homeschooled. Often, some parents will decide to homeschool their children for less obvious reasons, for religious, cultural or political leaning reasons. Sometimes parents prefer not to have their children schooled in mainstream environments. We, of course, don't know whether this was the case with the Null family, but later on, Johann's homeschooling would become a prominent feature of his defence. He would claim that he'd been isolated from the outside world, and as a result, he hadn't been able to mix with children of other backgrounds and races. This isolation, he would claim, had contributed to the development of his very specific thought patterns about the world. There is, of course, a third reason why Johann specifically may have been homeschooled by his mother, and that could be because he was struggling in the mainstream school system. His mother would later confirm that although Johann was intelligent, he'd had no interest in academics when he was of school-going age. Corey had struggled to get her son to pay attention to his studies when all the boy wanted to do was activities on the farm, which included his own little chicken farming operation he'd started. While we don't know much about how Johann behaved as a child and teenager, there is one pivotal instance which would be brought up later in his court proceedings, which, although difficult to really understand, is to me a clear indicator of issues in the boy's life, and this should have been a point at which intervention happened. In 2003, when Johann was 13, he alleged that a man had attempted to attack him with a sickle. Because he was a minor when this happened, there is very little information available about it, and we don't know whether Johann was actually attacked or injured, or whether the man had just threatened him. But on that day, 13-year-old Johann was armed with a gun, and he shot the man. The man was paralyzed in this event, but survived. One source says that the man had been cutting grass with a sickle alongside a railway line in Rustenburg when Johann had shot him. Johann stood by his claim that the man had attacked him, and he defended himself. The gun Johann had been armed with at the time had belonged to his father, and the boy was charged with attempted murder. Johann was found guilty of this and given a suspended sentence. I don't know whether the sentence happened as a result of some mitigating circumstance in this instance, or if the sentence was simply due to his age. Unfortunately, the suspended sentence was not accompanied by any ruling by the magistrates that Johann undergo any form of counselling, and it doesn't appear that his parents undertook to do this either. His mother would later say that she thinks Johann may have developed post-traumatic stress disorder after this incident, 
but it's really difficult to tell what the nature of the incident really was and what impact, if any, it may have had on Johan. The base fact here, though, is that a 13-year-old was walking around alone with a gun, and he shot and paralyzed another human being. In my world, that should have been a huge red flag situation. But it didn't seem to have really changed anything. And I can't help but feel that even at that point, Johan's actions were being minimized and brushed under the carpet, and not just by his parents and family, but even by the legal system. In the years before Johan committed this crime, and in the years after, there would be other incidents that he would claim had impacted his mental health and his way of thinking. In 2001, he claims that his brother was attacked. Then several other incidents happened with people he knew, where they were either attacked in their homes or became victims of crime in other places. Johan would claim that he took one overriding message from all of these things happening to people he knew. All of the victims he knew were white, and he believed that all of the perpetrators were black. In Johan's mind, this was no coincidence. In South Africa, it's sadly probably impossible to find anyone who doesn't know at least one person who's been a victim of crime. If I think about my own circle of people, I can think of at least one crime that's happened to every single person I know, whether they've been a victim of a so-called petty crime like a cell phone theft, or a violent home invasion, or another crime. So really, there's no reason that Johan's circle should have been any different. That's the reality of life in South Africa. But Johan couldn't seem to see this. And in all fairness, perhaps that was partially down to him firstly being very young, and secondly, seemingly quite cut off from the rest of the world. The other part of his building belief system was that the criminal acts he and the people he knew had experienced had allegedly all been perpetrated by black people. Now, in the minds of most other people, the very simple explanation of the racial makeup of South Africa would make sense as the precise reason for this. Although there's no solid proof that every crime Johan referred to was indeed perpetrated by a black person. But in every other country across the world, the percentage-based racial makeup of a country directly aligns to every other statistic related to crime, victims and convicted offenders. And South Africa is no different. As at a 2008 stat release, because that's the year in which Johan would go on to commit his crime, the South African population was made up of 77% black, 11% white, 9% coloured, and 3% Indian. For our international listeners, the word coloured is not a derogatory term in South Africa, it's a word used to describe a specific racial group by that group. And while I was not able to find a figure that classified all victims of crime by race group, there is a statistic from 2008 
that puts perhaps the most violent of crimes, murder by assault, at a pretty close correlation. 81% black victims, 14% colored victims, 4% white victims, and 1% Indian victims. And if we look at who is being convicted of these crimes, the prison population in South Africa as at 2008 consisted of 80% black, 18% colored, 2% white, and less than 1% Indian. For the most part, the victim and offender racial split lines up with the total racial population splits of our country, which makes complete sense. Add to that the fact that we know poverty contributes to crime, and there is no doubt that a historic legacy of poverty exists in our country along racial lines due to the generational impacts of apartheid, and there doesn't seem to be a question that the stats match up with what would be expected. But in Johann Nell's world, the data meant nothing, if he'd even had access to it. There was something in Johann's mind, perhaps encouraged by those around him, perhaps not, that had started to push the idea that he and his loved ones were being victimized due to their race. At least, this seems like what was happening. But after looking so deeply into what happened with Mornay Haramsa, I also can't help but wonder if this really was all that was at play, and how much this thought pattern actually contributed to what Johan Null was about to do. But more on that later. Corey Null was able to get her son through grade 11 before she fell ill. The nature of her illness is unknown, but she would later have a mastectomy, so it's possible that she was quite seriously ill at this time. Corey had struggled to get Johans through to grade 11, and she'd likely wondered how she would manage matric with him. The young man had to be continually guided back to his schoolwork, or he'd spend all day caring for his chickens. He'd been building his little chicken business slowly over the years, and was already earning an income from it. He would head into the nearby informal settlement named Skillock once a week and sell his chickens to the residents there. The Afrikaans word Skillock, without the R, means suddenly. The addition of the letter R is an example of what is called epensis, or letter insertion, which happens between languages, in this case, Afrikaans, and the original source Dutch. There's almost no information online about Skirlik, when it was formed, how many people live there, etc. But it's very clear that the area is one of the most underdeveloped informal settlements in the area, and the residents live in extremely difficult conditions. For many, fresh chicken or eggs from kept birds would have been a major luxury. So the young man's visits once a week were welcome, and he soon became a well-known face there. In January 2008, Johann Null was supposed to have started his matric year through his homeschooling setup with his mom. But Corey was ill, and she was unable to teach her son. 
Johann would never claim that anything other than his delusional thought patterns resulting from the stress of witnessing and experiencing violent crime had contributed to his actions. But I can't help but wonder if this young man's strained mind, already so overwhelmed by beliefs of victimhood and a largely self-imposed sense of vulnerability, had simply become completely disillusioned by his life when his mother told him his matric year would need to be postponed. There was that, and then there was a letter that Johann had received from a young lady he'd been in a relationship with. His family would later tell the court that Johann had been quite smitten with the girl, and they'd been seeing each other for a few months. But in January, she'd sent him a Dear John letter of sorts, explaining that she found him to be quite dull, and she didn't think he had much of a future ahead of him, so she was going to be moving on from their relationship. This rejection had apparently deeply impacted Johann, and he'd been spiralling into a deep depression, immersing himself in his chicken business and isolating even more than before. On the morning of the 14th of January 2008, Johann Null woke up and got dressed. He didn't dress in his usual shorts and t-shirt, though the comfy outfit that was appropriate to his normal routine. That day, he'd need a different outfit. He dressed in a pair of camouflage trousers and a similar jacket. If he'd surveyed himself in the mirror before setting off, he'd likely have thought he looked like the soldier he saw himself as that day. Then, suited up as he'd intended, He'd walked into his parents' bedroom and took his father's three o three rifle from its hiding place. It wasn't locked in a safe, and this would prove problematic for Henny Null later. He loaded the rifle with ammunition and pocketed the rest. His father's bucky stood outside where it always did when Henny wasn't driving it. His father had taught him to drive long ago, and he always used the vehicle to drive to Skillock when he went to sell his chickens. The drive that morning would be the same as all the others he'd made so many times. He knew the routine almost by heart. But he also knew, as the bucky ate across the tar road, that the outcome this time would be very different. As the jagged lines of the informal structures that made up Skirlik came into view, Johann knew that that day he wouldn't return with a wallet filled with hard-earned wages from the sales of his chickens. That day, he'd likely not return at all. Johann Nell drove into Skirlik and pulled in next to the spaza shop. He checked his weapon and patted his pockets, which contained extra ammunition. Then his boots hit the dirt, and he began to walk through the dusty roads between the homes. As soon as he saw the first person walking on the street, he began to fire. Johann did not pick out anyone in particular that day. He simply shot at people at random as he saw them. It also soon became clear that he had no preferred victim profile. He shot at men, women, and children.
old and young. 69-year-old Moses Clifton was at a neighbor's house when he heard the gunshots echoing through the streets of Skellig. He immediately went outside to ensure that his grandson and daughter were safe, but he was too late. He huddled behind the neighbor's house, watching as Johann Nell marched down the street, briefly pausing to reload his weapon. Ten-year-old Enoch Mochalanoka and 35-year-old Sivuyile Danani ran from their home straight into the line of fire. Moses cupped his hand over his mouth to silence his screams of horror as he watched Nell shoot both, and they fell to the ground, motionless. Elsewhere, Johann Nell came across another mother, 31-year-old Anna Mwepitli, was walking away from her home with her three-month-old baby, Keditlotse, strapped to her back, a traditional carrying method for African mothers. The bullets that Johan fired at her sadly went straight through her body and into that of her baby girl. Both died almost immediately. Three-year-old twins, Unkarabile and Karabo Lottering, were playing outside their house when they saw the man walking up the road. They hadn't known what the sound of the gunshots was, and likely continued playing right up until the moment when Johann Nall raised his gun and aimed at one of them. Onkarabile was shot several times that day. He would survive, but lost all use of his shoulder, which was shattered beyond repair. His twin, by some miracle, escaped injury. Johanna Fafaya was working in the felt when she heard the gunshots and screams. Although many of Skidlik's residents were running toward the felt now, screaming at her to take cover that there was a gunman on the streets, Johanna pushed past the crowd back onto the streets of Skidlik. She needed to find her son. She didn't know that the young boy had already fled, following his neighbors to safety. But long after that day, she would remember the bodies she saw, those who had already been gunned down and the injured, desperately trying to drag themselves to safety. As is the case with most mass murder incidents, although many hysterical calls came through to Swartrichen's police, by the time police cars began to enter the informal settlement, the shooting was over. Johann Nall hadn't intended to stop, though. He was running out of ammunition, and with just a few bullets left, he'd run through the felt to a nearby farmhouse. The shocked farmer had heard gunshots in the distance, and when a young man dressed in camo and brandishing a shotgun came running up to him, he feared he was about to be shot. Nall didn't shoot, though. Instead, he asked the man in an almost manic voice if he had some more ammunition for him. The farmer refused, starting to put the pieces together as the terrified screams of people drifted across the felt to his ears. Johann Nall became enraged and turned, shooting one of the farmer's ostriches dead. Then he fled on foot. Johann Nall made another stop at the next farm over, 
That farmer, having heard over the community radio that the young man was on the run, managed to convince him to set down his shotgun. He secured the weapon and then called police. 18-year-old Johann Nall was arrested within just a few hours of having fired his first deadly shot. Both Skillik and Swartlichens reeled in the hours and days after the shooting. Johann Null's parents were informed of what their son had done, and they rushed to the police station to see what they could find out about their son's situation. As the victims were assisted and transported to the hospital, the extent of the devastation became clear. Four people had lost their lives. Ten-year-old Enoch Mochalanoka, 31-year-old Anna Mwepitli, three-month-old baby Elizabeth Mwepitli, and 35-year-old Sivuyile Banani. Eight people had been shot and severely injured. Unkorabile Lottering, Margaret Madimabe, Alex Ndlovu, Homozo Serute, Kelebohile Surute, Pauline Letoko, Sina Mwepitli, and Sepo Mwepitli. As the media began to descend on Swartrichens, the overall narrative that would be presented was clear. Johann Null's attack had been racially motivated. Unfortunately for the communities of Swartrichens and Skillik, this narrative would not be isolated to one man. As is often the case in sensational crimes that occur in small towns, both Swartlichens and Skillik would almost become separate characters in this case, and both would be covered in the same label that Johann Null was, racist. Whether or not this was fair and how deep the level of racism ran in these areas remains up for debate, but it would become clear that the residents of both areas did not appreciate this resulting labelling because they felt that Johann Null was an aberration. He was the exception rather than the rule when it came to the residents of Swartrichens and Skillik. Jumping ahead slightly for a minute but related to this topic, in 2010, a master's student from the University of KwaZulu-Natal, Santosh Pillay, travelled to Swartrichens and spent time there studying the impact of Johann's crime on the town, as well as trying to understand how accurate the reporting of race relations in the area had been in 2008. It's a long and detailed study, and it's really interesting. I'm not going to get into all of the information Pillay brings across here, but if you're interested in reading the study, you can Google the phrase, The Media is Telling Lies, All Lies, by Santosh Pillay, and that PDF should come up. In the study, Pillay attempts to discover, among other things, how accurate the representation of Swartrichens was in the media, and in his introduction, he already jokingly expresses how he himself got swept away by the picture painted of the area in articles. He explains how he was expecting what had been portrayed, two distinctly separate communities, Swartrichens, the so-called white side, and Skillik, 
the so-called black side. He wondered how he, as a man from South Africa's Indian population, would even fit in during his stay there. He was prepared to stand out like a sore thumb, and he was sure that this was going to make his word his work even harder, because simply on the basis of what he looked like, he might already be considered an outsider, not to be trusted. Pillay had not even booked into his accommodation when that theory was blown out of the water, though. He pulled his car into the only petrol station in Swartlichens, and behind the counter, he found an Indian man. Pillay describes being completely taken aback. Nowhere in any of the seemingly detailed descriptions of the race dynamics in Swartlichens had anyone mentioned an Indian community. He was certain for a moment that this man must be an anomaly. But he was wrong on that count, too. The man laughed as he explained that there'd been an Indian community in Swartlichens for decades. They'd built a mosque for those that practiced the Muslim faith. He owned one of the most important businesses in the area and had good relationships with white and black business owners and residents alike. Pillay was flawed. Through interviews and interactions, he would go on to discover that neither the residents of Swartlichens nor Skirluk had been satisfied with how they'd been presented to the world in the wake of Johann Null's crime. He could not find a single white resident that supported what Null had done, and he couldn't find a single black resident that felt that any good had come from their community being presented to the world as one where hatred lived. No one would deny that there were and always would be people who held generational beliefs around others because of the color of their skin, but not a single resident of that area wanted to be identified as someone who would kill a three-month-old baby simply because she belonged to a certain racial group. Now, I'm not living in a dream world here. I am well aware that people will say what they know others want to hear. Almost no one is going to admit to being a racist, whether they are black or white. And that doesn't mean they aren't one. But Johann Null's crime had painted the area as a place where white people were targeted by black people. And in his mind, the targeting of black people then became just payback. And this just didn't seem to ring true. Johann Null, of course, would still have had to stand in a court of law and face a judge to, to explain his crimes, and if he'd ever really held a deeply racist ideology that spurred his crimes, that would all seem to crumble as he faced the possibility of spending the rest of his life in prison. Johann was charged with four counts of murder, eleven of attempted murder, and one each for the illegal possession of weapons and ammunition. Now, the eleven attempted murder charges are quite confusing, and because I don't have the judgments in this case, I don't have names to attach to those charges. As is so common in such cases, the victims took a back seat in reporting, and the count of people injured ranges wildly from six to eleven in various reports. 
The names I read to you earlier were from a monument erected in the memory of the survivors and victims of the attack, so I would at least hope that that would be accurate. Of course, attempted murder could stem from simply shooting at someone, even if he didn't hit them, so that may be where the discrepancy comes in. Johan was denied bail, and I'm certain this had a lot to do with the huge amounts of community outrage. Almost every single time Johan appeared in court, there were demonstrations outside the courthouse. But the drama in this case did not end there. Before the end of the trial, Johan's family would sell their property and move to an in an initially undisclosed location. They would later say that they'd been, been receiving death threats. The judge and his assistants on the case would also later admit that they'd received up to 50 death threats during the trial. The threats all leaned toward Johan Nall. If the judge found him guilty and gave him a heavy sentence, he would pay. Now, it would be very easy to assume that these threats came from people who knew and cared about Johan Nall but that's actually quite unlikely. The narrative in the press was that Null had committed a racially motivated mass murder. Without fail across the world, whenever someone does something like this, they garner a huge amount of support from people who are aligned with these sorts of thought systems. So, it really doesn't surprise me that Johan Null had some groupies. The nature of the crime meant that Johan would definitely need to have a psychiatric assessment to ensure that he was fit to stand trial and that he wasn't living with any psychiatric disorders that could have impacted his behaviour at the time of the crime. Null would be found fit to stand trial and there was no diagnosis that could have interfered with his criminal culpability when he committed the crime. It soon became clear that Johan Null understood he could not claim not to be guilty of the crime because there were too many witnesses, too much evidence. It was clear that he hoped he could claim some form of mental illness. He told his mother in the early hours after the crime that he'd just snapped and continued to claim he couldn't remember anything about that day. He seemed to want people to believe that he'd disassociated in some way and that he hadn't been in control of his actions. The psychiatrists who evaluated him had not found this to be true, and the prosecutor would say that Null's actions had been too premeditated, too calculated, for him to have been in any state of disassociation. With little hope that he may be found not guilty or acquitted of the crimes, Johann Null pleaded guilty to all the charges against him. His father, Henny, had also been charged with negligent handling of a firearm because he'd failed to secure his shotgun and ensure his son could not access it. These charges were inexplicably withdrawn soon after they were laid, and although the prosecutor told the press that they could be reinstated at any time, they never were. As the Skillick shooter faced court hearings, the victims of his crime were laid to rest. Almost immediately it became clear that local politicians were happily using the crime to raise their public profile, 
and the survivors and family members of the victims would say time and again in the years to come that they felt like their tragedy had become someone else's profit. The survivors had been promised financial compensation of some sort to help them deal with the fact that they'd lost their ability to earn income due to their injuries, but from what I can see, that never happened. Enoch Mochilonoka, Anna Moepitli, and baby Elizabeth Moepitli were laid to rest in a graveyard in Swartwichens, while Sivu Yile Banani's family took her remains back to the Eastern Cape for burial. As a result of Null's guilty plea, the proceedings to sentencing moved relatively quickly. Perhaps a small blessing for the communities of Skilluk and Swartlichens. The sooner the court case was over and Null was sentenced, the sooner they could start to try and rebuild their lives and perhaps repair the proverbial bridges that seemed to have been burned. Null's only hope for a lesser sentence lay in presenting mitigating circumstances to the judge. He and his defence team felt that there were significant mitigating circumstances to consider, and I can't help but wonder if, considering how his trial for attempted murder had gone when he was 13, he and his family had some hope that things would go the same way this time. If they did, they would be sorely mistaken. Johann was not a child anymore and this time there was no hope of claiming self-defence, and he had very clearly premeditated this horrendous crime, and his claimed ideology only added to the severity of his actions. Still, the Nulls gave it their best shot. They recruited criminologist Dr. Ermela Baskachny to provide an assessment of their son and his actions. Labaskachny would testify that, quote, Null believed that there was a war out there and that the enemy should and could be controlled. End quote. She highlighted the difficulties that the young man had experienced in the run up to the crime, including the breakup with his girlfriend, during which she had seemingly insulted him, and his mother's illness. She said that it was clear that his isolation from the world had contributed to his delusional thought patterns which had been deeply ingrained in his mind. She told the judge that she did believe he could be rehabilitated, but it would take a very long time and intense psychiatric treatment. Labaskakni's testimony was professional and unbiased, but the Null family would later say that they were unhappy with her evidence. They felt that she hadn't taken much of Johann's trauma into account, and they were sure she could have had a deeper impact on mitigation. Defence witnesses, though, despite being paid for their services, must provide an unbiased presentation of the facts. Whether an expert witness is hired by the defence or the prosecution, they must serve the court. Their evidence must help the judge to better understand both sides, so that he or she can make an educated ruling and their job is not to sway the decision one way or another. Johann Null told the courts that, quote, I don't believe I should be punished, because I was not myself when it happened. 
To punish me for something the real me didn't do is like punishing someone for another person's crime. End quote. His mother, Corey, said that anyone who knew Johan knew that he was not the type of person that would do something like that, and it was clear, to her at least, that her son had suffered from some type of psychological break when he committed the murders. The defence did their best to point out how they believed Johan's childhood and his family's belief systems had contributed to his crime. Besides the isolation, he'd also been encouraged to participate in gun sports. He, his brother and father, had been a member of the local gun club for years, and there were piles of gun-related magazines in his bedroom. But many local men were interested in guns. They hadn't all taken one to an informal settlement and killed four people. Survivors of the tragedy and family members of the victims testified as to their suffering and trauma, and many testified that while Johan had been walking through the streets, shooting people, he'd uttered racist profanities at them. Many still had nightmares in which his voice called them these slurs, punctuated by gunshots. Johan Null had behaved strangely during this trial. Rather than appearing remorseful, he'd seemed almost upbeat. He often gave thumbs-up signs to his parents and, strangely, smiled at the family members of his victims. Johan Null was handed down four life sentences, plus an additional 168 years, for the attempted murders and firearm charges. His attorney immediately put in an appeal, which was declined. His multiple life sentences and the additional years meant that it should be very difficult for him to be granted parole in the future, although he will become eligible for the process at 25 years, which will start in 2033. For the survivors of the Skellig Massacre, each year after Null sentencing would bring a fresh rehashing of the memories. The local municipality and other organisations arranged commemoration events each year, more often than not, without consulting Skellig community members or survivors. Each year, the media was called and speeches were made. In the beginning, some survivors attended. One man suggested that a good way to remember the children would be to name a library after them or a clinic. The area had neither amenity at the time, and both were sorely needed. But no such thing happened. Instead, in a painful irony, the residents of Skellig took their own action to ensure that no one would ever forget what had happened there. Over the years, as the informal settlement grew, a new section was created, and it was unofficially named Johan Null Section. As the years went by, the commemorations continued, but fewer and fewer people attended, and they eventually completely petered out. Corey and Henny Null sold their farm in Swartlichens and would spend the next few years moving around the area to be closer to their son's latest prison location. 
They visited the young man as many times a month as the prison regulation allowed. And in 2012, news broke that the then 23-year-old man was getting married. Johan had met Marina Nordia when the 18-year-old girl had been visiting another family member in prison. The pair had started to chat, and soon both admitted that they had feelings for one another. Corinne Null would later say that she'd made sure that Marina knew exactly what she was getting into. She said she'd given the girl the psychological reports that had been put together during her son's trial so that she could read about what he'd done. Marina told journalist Carla van der Spey that she was well aware that she was signing up for a possible lifetime of loneliness when she married Johan. There was no guarantee that he would ever get parole, and even if he did by some small chance on his first availability, she may already be too old at that time to have children. Despite this stark future, young Marina claimed that she and Johan were perfect for each other, and they were willing to put in the work it took to make a prison marriage successful. The pair married in a small ceremony on the prison premises. Both Marina and Johan's parents were present. The couple were allowed to hold hands and embrace, but they could not consummate their marriage as conjugal visits were not allowed. Marina visited with her in-laws regularly, and they would later tell Carla van der Spey that she eventually moved in with them entirely. Then, four years after the young woman married their son, Marina had started asking the Nels for bus tickets to Pretoria to visit her father. They claimed that they later discovered she was not visiting her father at all, but rather a man she'd met and become involved in a relationship with. One day, Morena sent the Nulls a message to say that she wouldn't be returning, and she wanted to divorce Johan. They never heard from the young woman again, but discovered she'd had a baby with her new boyfriend soon after her divorce from Johan was finalised. In their conversation with Van der Spey, the Nulls clearly feel that Morena behaved unfairly, and they seem to hold anger toward her. In the same breath, they speak of their own son and his actions in terms of everyone makes mistakes, and he was just a child when it happened. While I have significant empathy for the Nulls and what they've been through, I cannot help but wonder if they see the irony in them holding Morena responsible for her choice to marry their mass murderer convict son and then changing her mind four years later and putting her own happiness first, while simultaneously wishing that people would just forgive their son for his actions, which ended the lives of four people, almost killed another eight, and forever changed the lives of countless more. I realize that much of the data I've put forward and my reasoning around Johann Null's delusional thought patterns could come across as me excusing him or pretending that there was no racial undertone to this crime. So let me be very clear. I can never and will never condone Johann Null's actions. His crime was hateful and inexcusable. 
My only concern is that his crime will be filed away in the extremist massacre category and that the focus will be on his racist ideologies. If that happens, I think we miss out on a huge opportunity to see the bigger picture. Johann Null was primed to accept any ideology. He was not that different from Monet Haramsa. He was insecure, had low self-esteem, felt isolated despite often being in contact with many people, and he was emotionally unstable. He shot and almost killed someone when he was 13 years old, and he was not held accountable for that or given any psychological intervention. While hindsight is always 2020, and I have never walked a day in the Nell's shoes, I have to ask, did you really think that was going to be the end of it? Although the Nulls may not admit it, there is absolutely no doubt that generational racism is handed down to children every single day in South Africa. Parents who themselves who have been brainwashed in a way into hatred pass down their illogical hatred to their children. Sometimes that hatred is race-based. Other times it has to do with sexual orientation or even religious choices. Parents continue to pass down the fear of the unknown, and when an emotionally unstable person is raised in such an environment, it provides an easy out when they're looking to make a mark. Because just as so many who came before him, I believe Johann Nell was doing just that. He was trying to be somebody trying to shrug off the hopelessness that festered inside him for so long. His girlfriend didn't want him because he was boring, she said. His mother couldn't help him get matric because she was sick. Everything was going to hell, so he may as well pick a cause. Choose something that people would remember him for. One of the main reasons I don't think Johann Null's racist ideology was nearly as deeply seated as people would make out is because there's very little proof of it in his life. Most mass murderers who kill for racist or other ideological reasons leave reams of material behind. They've become obsessed, immersed themselves in the hatred until they live it. Johann Null did not present that way. Do I think he had a problem with black people? Absolutely. If he didn't, he would have gone shooting in the middle of downtown Swatlichens instead. But I do think that he chose to go to Skellig that day because it was convenient, as disgusting as that sounds. He knew it would make waves, and he knew people would be horrified. Equally, he knew very well that at least a few people would align themselves with him, regardless of how shallow his ideology really ran. For the victims of the Skellig massacre, though, it makes no difference whether Johann Nell was a crazed, deeply racist mass murderer or just a really unstable young man looking to make a name for himself. For them... 
The bullets were just as destructive regardless of the mind behind the person holding the gun. And perhaps that is where we fail the victims. In equal parts, by not acknowledging that they were specifically targeted because of the color of their skin, and also by not acknowledging that it all ran far deeper than that. When we write Johann Null off as a crazy racist anomaly, we disregard the horrifying truth that somewhere out there, right now, another young boy is on this very same path. He's lost and faltering. He's counting down the days. And soon, he too will pick his cause. Because he'll need a cause. If he doesn't have one, he may be just another cold-blooded murderer. And that just wouldn't do, now would it? Enoch Mochilanoka, Anna Moipitli, Elizabeth Moipitli, and Sivuyile Banani, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 102, The Skellig Massacre. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.